Hello and welcome to Global Digital Futures Podcast, brought to you by the SOAS Coding Club. I'm your host, Chipoma Pondera, and you're listening to SOAS Radio. The researcher on this episode was Eliza Bacon, and the editor was Dervila Nivrenen. This week, we are joined by Matti Poyanen to speak about extreme speech and content moderation online. Matty works at the intersection of digital anthropology, philosophy, and data science. For the past 10 years, he has developed critical comparative research approaches for understanding digital cultures globally. This has included work on international news and blogging in India, mobile technology in East Africa, and exploring new methods in big data analysis and artificial intelligence for digital media research. Matty has taught at SOAS in global digital media and post-national communications. And he is now a researcher at the University of Helsinki, where he is working on global and comparative dimensions of platform accountability. Hi, Matti. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Chippo. It's always uh, always pleasure to be here. So I'm going to jump right in. And this year we have sparked, uh, or this year has sparked, a global conversation on the role of big tech in extreme speech and content moderation. So Trump was deplatformed from various social media sites following the capital storming, and the face-off between Twitter and the Indian government has also been widely reported. Could you speak to some of some of the issues raised by these phenomena? I think we're dealing with a number of very, very complicated questions. I will try to start unpacking some of them, just to see the perspective that I bring into it and the framing that I bring the question. So uh, one of the projects that I've been working on uh, for the last four, three, four years has been on this thing called extreme speech. And by extreme speech, we mean uh, we realized around 2016, 2017, that there was a very West-centric perspective to emerging debates around online hate speech and uh, online extremism. And we wanted to do some kind of work having some background in anthropology and digital anthropology. We wanted to see, could we bring a more anthropological, uh, contextual, cultural qualifier to some of the debates that were at that point at least framed in a very legal normative sense. And by that, I mean that it was based on legislation and uh, some of the work around that. And so we started uh, this project called Extreme Speech, where we started looking at examples and also theoretical conceptual perspectives for trying to understand debates around uh, which have now become extremely popular in uh, the public media around uh, hate speech, misinformation, and all these so-called nasty sides of contemporary digital communication. So the question we were in a way asking, and I've been building on this work for quite a long time, is that there is a very global debate that is often also forgotten in the debates around extreme speech. And by using this term, I refer to the whole kind of cluster of different phenomena. And by this global debate, we mean that uh, it is not entirely linked to uh, very powerful articulations that have been going on in the European context. So we can see around Trump, we can see it around, uh, there's a whole history around that, around Brexit, Trump elections, the capital storming being the recent one. Now we get the QAnon and the debate on fake news, and we had anti-migration. So I've been working alongside this. And so we wanted to work around how do we understand the very global Mm -hmm. debate around this this question. And so uh, just as a way of framing it, for somebody like myself who has been working on digital research and digital cultures for far too long now, so I would say about 15 years, if we count early early research on blogging in India in the mid-2000s. So there has been an interesting shift and uh, even... Somebody who hasn't been as long involved has seen this shift emerging. And this shift has uh, been uh, starting from a kind of a utopian discourse 
of digital technology, ARA Spring Digital Technology, as a way of yeah. bringing democracy and a very powerful information and communication technology for development. And there are variations of this debate has been gradually shifting into what some people have been calling its dark side mm. or its nef- nefarious side or its uh, or its so-called e- evil side, which yeah. is uh, increasingly we are seeing debates around digital technology being framed in terms of its negative effects. And once you look at it in this way, it's interesting to start focusing around this broader perspective that when we talk about something having negative effects, it's increasingly being seen also as a prescriptive debate. And by this, I mean, we are seeing a certain kind of negative framing and also a set of solutions that are emerging around that. So when we look at this kind of debate in a very broader broader sense, we are seeing a very powerful new way of understanding of what we see is wrong in society currently, what is wrong in communication, and what should be the prescriptive solution to that. So when I start looking at this debate around um, extreme speech and content moderation, I'm always trying to distance myself back in a kind of philosophical sense and seeing what does it mean then more broadly for uh, debates around global digital cultures and global digital communication. And yeah, so just to kind of frame where I come into the debate debates here. And what are some of the biases that come up when looking at or considering this phenomena in the West versus in the global South, as you're doing? It's not really biases in a way. It's uh, There are various phenomena, there are various interrelationships, and there are various ways that the same debate is being refracted mm. in different parts of the world. So rather than seeing it in terms of a bias, we're trying to now or try to see it in terms of what is happening in the other parts of the world and also what are the consequences of this emerging debate into a different context. And so there are various terms that we can use here. We can use smaller marginal countries. We can use the non-West. So if we take an example such as India, it probably would not be considered anymore a smaller marginal country. Mm but then the debate would be refracted in different ways. So it's not really in terms of biases, it's about kind of about deprovincializing the mm. debates that are taking place in the powerful West and seeing what actually happens in other parts of the world and what are the complicated political and social dimensions of that. A good example of this would be, uh, there is, and we can talk about this perhaps later a bit, is that there was a report made about one of the most powerful laws for combating hate speech that came out of the German context. Mm. And so this report was saying that uh, the so-called net digi law, which had certain stipulations of how quickly negative hateful content should be removed mm. after it's being uh, flagged by users or flagged by some parties. So the same type of language, same type of ideas, same type to have been then also being used in other contexts for very different purposes. So I'm interested in seeing this kind of global flow of ideas and how they become transformed how they become used, how they enter different contexts, and what might be some of the challenges mm. and some of the problems that we in the way we operate this problem. And so it is this kind of cluster of cluster of many complicated influences. So yeah, I can talk about specifics of this a bit more later. But so it is this kind of cultural translation of debates that enter other other parts of the world with very different consequences and with very different histories. Let's take a short break. You are listening to the Global Digital Futures Podcast with Chipo Mapondera, where we discuss the latest in digital media and technology in the Global South. Okay, let's get back to the conversation. Great. So I'm quite interested in... Also, having some background on 
we have extreme speech as one phenomena that's sort of really being talked about in relation to online conversations and big tech. But then there's also these conspiracy theories such as QAnon. Have you discovered any parallels in the global south of phenomena like that? Yeah, it's a good it's a good question. And I think, again, this is, uh, in a way, the way I frame the question, it is very reflective of how we see it. And so QAnon has become, uh, again, part of the capital storming has become a very big phenomenon. So uh, we were with some colleagues from which university and University of Cambridge were actually working on. We wanted to look at conspiracy theories in a very contextual situation. So we did a fair, fair bit of research on Ni- comparing Nigeria and South African context mm. around conspiracy theories. And we didn't look at QAnon, so that QAnon hasn't been as popular yeah. in, um, in those countries. But we are looking at some of the debates around what is now very commonly known as the infodemic. So we are looking at, okay, the 5G conspiracy yes. and the Bill Gates conspiracy being yeah. two of the very dominant yeah. Yeah. debates around, yeah. uh, around these. And obviously, they have also trickled down into a different context. And we did this big kind of Twitter analysis of uh, big data sets and looking at community community structures and other things. And so what was interesting is that what happened in this research, mostly done by my colleagues, I've been a collaborating partner in this. And so we had people from Nigeria and South Africa and working on this. So it was a team effort. So what we found out that the way these conspiracies were situated or located in these countries, these online communities, were quite different from just the universal framing them. In the Nigerian con became very quickly interpreted or appropriated by the local political debates around corruption and uh, and some of the political leaders around that. Whereas in the South African context, they were quite quickly co-opted into debates around what is called an identitarian response. So a broader criticism of Western influence and Western mm, power mm, in, mm. in the kind of African context and some of the histories around that. So what is interesting in a way that we were the way we're trying to look at conspiracy theories is that to stay away or move away slightly from this framing of conspiracy theories or the negative external or the negative parts of communications as being seen only as negative externalities yep. of online communication, but rather seeing them as a part of the broader systems of meaning making in different yep. contexts where yep. so-called conspiracy in its broad sense becomes one way people make sense of the world according to certain social cultural context. And so I think it's good to hear, separate here some conceptual. So there's a bit of conceptual unclarity in terms of how all these things are being lumped together. Mm-hmm. So um, we can talk about disinformation as information that is purposefully deceiving, that mm-hmm. people do it for a purpose that is, is purposefully trying to deceive people mm-hmm. by providing false information. Mm-hmm. We have misinformation, which is unpurposefully mis- misleading information. And then we have conspiracy theories, which is a slightly different category. And if you look at some of the research, on conspiracy theories, it goes way back into a earlier work. And uh, as a conception, conspiracy theories has been seen as a broader category of how which people make in popular ways sense of the workings of power and government, sometimes in ways that are not factual, but at, yeah. at the same time as ways that they try to make sense of the world according to their perspectives. Yeah, that's really interesting and actually really relatable for me. I'm in Zimbabwe at the moment. So this conspiracies around Bill Gates and 5G. Um, Yeah, it's a big thing. (laughs) So how do you think these conversations and these phenomena, misinformation, disinformation, conspiracy theories, how are they affecting trust in big tech globally? And I might even say trust in big tech and just, I don't know if this is too (laughs) meta, but like truth and information? Yeah, it's a tough question. So I've been thinking about the idea of trust in a way and uh, 
So I would frame the question in a way is that once we talk about an oil company, do we trust the oil companies? And then once we're talking about the medi- some, let's say a biomedical company, why do we trust a biomedical company? Why do we trust? So in a way, once we go into big tech, why do we ask different questions? So in a way, I see this as a part of the broader framing that there's been a very powerful framing by the big tech companies of trying to uh, promote themselves. And this sure. links to the early idea of this kind of big tech Silicon Valley as somehow involved in a business that is leading to a broader public good yeah. and being quite successful at that. Whereas the same debate probably happened among the oil companies in the 50s, 60s or chemical companies, unless some of their not so good workings were revealed and uh, there was a big critical. So we're not dealing with certain kind of authentic version of trust, but we are dealing with the very complicated PR operations of companies that might have started from a good point, but now have become multi-billion companies with all the resources available to both produce a certain image of themselves. And secondly, to use very powerful mechanisms of lobbying governments or working with governments to ensure an outcome that is, regardless of the trust, that is something that is beneficial to their business interests. So if we follow the money this way, we can start seeing the trust becomes, in a way, discussed in a very different way. It is both. So people are, there's a a certain kind of PR image that let's say Facebook is working, for instance. So for them, at the same time, there are people who are sincerely trying to avoid the worst types of communication and come up with good solutions to that. But at the same time, it is also PR solutions that content moderation for them partially is a question of business as well. If you are not able to maintain trust of the people you work with, it can have negative business consequences. So if we look at it this way, you can start seeing how this operates also in different parts of the world where that business prerogative has not so far been as powerful. And hence, there hasn't been as much pressure from the companies to create this idea of trust that they're doing something something positive. So yeah. a good example of this would be when I was talking to some officials in Ethiopia way back and they were talking about Facebook, they just said that, again, now it's changed a bit because of various issues, but they just didn't care. So there was no carrot to do anything. So Facebook did not have the business interest to take their concerned seriously because mm. it's a big country, but still limited limited um, online online presence. And so you can start seeing this, this is complicated. And so uh, rather than looking at people trusting so- something, it's like, why should we trust them in the first place? Right. I don't know if this makes sense. And, yeah. and rather, rather seeing what their specific role is, if yeah. we start approaching critically as a company that is very significantly invested and involved yeah. in the way we communicate. Let's take a short break. Join the Global Digital Futures community. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at global underscore futures. Let's keep the conversation going. Yeah, that does make sense. It does. And with this idea of trust or representing, or the big tech platforms representing themselves as somehow trustworthy or transparent that's a term that they use you know very often right I guess part of their transparency is also in how they moderate content how they deal with extreme speech so how is that being imagined at the moment and we say imagined because I don't think there's a fixed reality of of it at the moment no imagine is a good term so uh, I was working a fair bit on extremism as a sub, subtopic of uh, extreme speech. If we look at the precedence to contemporary debates on content moderation, we can see some of these same mechanisms, ne- mechanisms already, be, already being developed and applied during, say, ISIS, for instance. So one of the first 
big cases where content moderation deplatforming was done effectively was done with ISIS. And this happened in Twitter in 2015-2016 onwards, and then Facebook, and they proactively were able to remove most of ISIS content. And later on, they moved to Telegram, and that was also Telegram removed a lot of the content. So there has been a lot of uh, precedents of what has been going on in terms of content moderation. So the reason uh, I've been interested in debates around extremism, and so I used to, there was, a, there was a conference I was attending earlier, I call it the canary in the coal mine. So it was already kind of for, forecasting or foretelling us the types of practices that then have become much more mainstreamed. So what, what seems to be happening right now is this kind of debate around extremization of online communication has become mainstreamed. And hence, what is the kind of solution that comes to that is the content moderation. So the content yeah. moderation has become the key debate yeah. through which we are dealing with a lot of things around uh, the negative sides of online communication. So if we take this as a kind of cluster and uh, we look at the problem and the solution, and the solution becomes we need to have increased content moderation, often for a good reason. There's nothing wrong. Content moderation is one of the fundamental premises of all platform communication companies. It's the kind of stuff that they try to hide, but everything is content moderation. Yeah. Because you cannot have the early days of unbridled communication. So that's uh, so in a way, these companies are as, as much communication companies as they are content moderation, content filtering companies who structure information in a certain way. So if you look at this kind of what I call the problem solution assemblages, we are also seeing different forms of how we understand what the solution to the problem should be. So the way I'm starting to approach this is starting to look at these practices of using content moderation as a kind of a beacon or what they call in technical language, they call it anticipation or anticipatory media, which are these practices or these policies that are adopted that will affect communication five years from now or affect communication in the future. So yeah. by looking at this content moderation practices, we are seeing certain imaginaries of how we envision digital communication. And so what's basically happening is that there's the pressure for content moderation. And obviously, content moderation itself, we can go into the subsections of it. So what it basically means is both human moderation, which is often um, low paid labor in the Philippines or some other countries. And then we have, which is uh, hard to scale up towards up to a certain degree. So once we have about 15,000 work, people working, it's very hard to get more. Yeah. And the growth of communication, then we have technology. And so technology becomes now as the solution to this problem of content moderation. So if there's a problem to fix, we have now artificial intelligence to fix it. So then the idea of the future digital communication and certain kind of filtration or artificial intelligence-based solution become entangled in a very interesting way. And I'm trying to understand what this kind of practice, this kind of discourse that is emerging is as a, as a kind of a beacon for how the future communication, and, and you can see a lot of these trends now taking place that the, we, can, we can talk about different parts of the world. And again, uh, part of my background interest is, is to focus, focus on countries that this debate is much more raw in a way that is not as uh, as talked about as in uh, dealing with the American Trump crisis. Or So once you approach it this way, we see this cluster of content moderation, but content moderation as being a bigger social political process that is only restrict the technical details. Mm. And legal details, so what needs to be removed. I don't know if, if framing it that way, if it makes sense. It makes sense, but it sounds like quite a minefield. <laughs> because then, I mean, it's quite a good lead up to my next question. Then there's a lot of considerations, especially if a, a platform that's being used globally in different cultures and different political contexts. How can they determine or identify what posts are extreme, what posts are inciting, you know, negative phenomena if you look at it from a very 
there's a good book by Tartan Gillespie on content moderation who says that it's a, it's based on a paradox that is both impossible but you have to do it. Mm-hmm. So uh, just by prefacing that way, obviously there are certain criminal behaviors and how were this historically how were these criminal behaviors being moderated? So if you go back in time, so criminal speech, for instance, so that determined by court of law. So the mechanisms through which something was considered criminal or punishable was done in a court of law. And so that basically happened. So you had libel, libel speech, you had all kinds of speech practices. With social media, the situation becomes slightly different because of the scale and speed mm-hmm. of what is being produced. So there is a certain kind of push or demand for real-time filtration of mm-hmm. speech. And uh, what that means is that rather than making certain speech criminal after the fact, you make it partially criminal or objectionable before the fact. And mm-hmm. the push seems to be going in that direction. Again, whether it's a good or, good or bad thing, I'm not entirely sure. So it's just observing the patterns. So this is called, uh, there's a term for it in legal speech, which is uh, prior constraint on speech. And what it means is that you're basically preventing speech before it happens. And every social media company is being involved in that, mm-hmm. either through algorithmic methods or now increasingly through filtering of content. The question then becomes there if you start looking at the legal implications of that. We are not anymore dealing, every country has a different freedom of speech law. Every country has different law on what is acceptable, what is not acceptable. But these things are not increasingly not being decided by a democratic process to which ideally the courts in certain countries in the world work. Um, I don't say that it works in all countries. By, by a democratic process of determining what types of social speech is acceptable, but rather through different mechanisms of public pressure, social, uh, private companies, and then legislation, and all this kind of mix in. Mm-hmm. So the idea of accountability that we look at in the project is we're trying to theorize this multifaceted perspective where the social media companies are being held accountable and what are the different dimensions of that. So obviously, once we take, for instance, Finland, a very simple peaceful consensus country where there's a lot of nasty stuff, but the, the stakes are not probably as high as there would be another country. And if we take, for instance, Ethiopia, where there is a massive ethnic conflict, quasi-civil war going on, and very big implications of uh, certain wrong type of messaging. So we are dealing in a very different context. So can the same rules necessarily apply to that? And uh, can Facebook so, as a social media company, how do they react to this complexity mm. of uh, not only hundreds of countries around the world, but millions of different user groups? And, so it is, it is. So all of these things, rather than having a one simple solution to it, I try to approach it as trying to see how we are envisioning a certain digital future by these decisions that are taken that are very uncertain and contingent and difficult and, and uh, sometimes contradictory and uh, nobody really knows exactly what to do about it. I try to, in my own little way, approach this tangle of complicated questions. <laughs> it is complicated. So... Actually, I'd like to get maybe some examples of how content moderation is being approached in the Global South, in some Global South countries, perhaps with your research in Ethiopia or other countries where this is kind of a hot topic like Sri Lanka and Myanmar. Again, what I've been increasingly conceptualizing as this kind, we can take the dominant discourse around Trump and uh, Brexit and these things and European uh, anti-immigrant hate speech. But then there has been a parallel debate that has been emerging and has had, I'm not sure is it parallel or is it like subsidiary or is it like shadow, shadow debate or whatever, whatever the mm. good name for it is. That So one of the key cases for that was uh, Myanmar and, the, and a lot of the debate that started with the Rohingya genocide. And uh, we can call it probably genocide. Well, mass, mass ethnic violence in the Rohingya yeah. per- perpetrated by the Myanmar's government. 
as my friend Ronald Nee would say, would be a genocide. But yeah. so a lot of the speech that was uh, facilitated at the time on Facebook, partially due to uh, the fact that the Myanmar government quickly opened their opened their communication infrastructure and Facebook came in and used their free basics to uh, give most people access to internet through Facebook. So Facebook became de facto the internet for a little bit. So there was this history of uh, what some would call predatory capitalistic practices. And so uh, at the time when people started notifying the problem, there were only a handful of people who even spoke Burmese in uh, some of the major social media companies and not taking into account the multiple different other languages. So uh, this parallel discourse has been emerging that there, if you take German or Finnish, or not Finnish, maybe less so, but if you take German or this, there is a lot of resources being put into working around this. But suddenly, about two, three years ago, there was a realization that most countries in the world or many countries in the world are not being serviced because there's absolutely no resources, partially because they are kind of marginal from a business perspective. And so uh, they don't have language skills, there's no technical skills, and there's no, oftentimes, no contextual skills. So somebody who works in Silicon Valley might be really good in what they do, trained as a, as a lawyer. They probably have a hard time understanding the very nuanced contexts of extreme speech in a very anthropological sense when you are dealing with uh, some tribal communication in a part of the world that still doesn't have... Um, even even the, the kind of language resources are still being yeah. developed. So we're dealing with then this question of once we start looking at this parallel discourse and very specific examples of these uh, content moderation practices that the companies have tried to start building resources. And so what happens often is that these resources are being built in response to public pressure about you have to take accountability because there is a lot of bad bad stuff happening. Mm. So in Myanmar, it was when the UN, I think the UN issued a report that Facebook has been complicit in genocide. So that, oops, we have to, we have to start quickly building resources. And so then uh, Sri Lanka was one of the stories that was also publicly talked about. And that had to do, deal with the inter-ethnic violence in, in Sri Lanka. And, mm. and why Ethiopia now is interesting is that the same kind of debate has been increasingly focusing on Ethiopia. And starting from uh, there's been uh, potential cases where Facebook has been complicit or at least catalyzing mass killings on the ground to the point that this was Ilhan Omar, the Democrat senator and the congresswoman from the U.S., who uh, issued a note, issued a personal letter to uh, Mark Zuckerberg that uh, she's very concerned about what is going on and made the comparison to Rwandan genocide and, uh, mm. and the responsibility of Facebook of stopping, stopping uh, these things. And so we are seeing that kind of debate emerge. So on the one hand, we have this debate around the extremism, extremism politics, uh, Trump, uh, far right that is very dominant in the European context. But then there seems to be this parallel debate that I've been in interested in in some of my work even before around uh, where the kind of point of origin is more ethnic violence. Mm. And it might be more less about extremism, but more about the, the specter of genocide in Rwanda mm. and some of the issues around that. So we're seeing these things on Facebook is now increasingly trying to find mechanisms to uh, take this so-called uh, non, what do you call a parallel discourse more seriously. So now I think they finally set up office or hired a lot of people working on different Ethiopian languages. For instance, the terms of con the content moderation or the community guidelines, I'm not sure exactly what the specific term for it, had not been translated into most Ethiopian languages. Mm. So there was no even information of what the community guidelines were. Yeah. So again, it's like Wild Wild West. So that's the kind of parallel discourse that I have been interested in focusing on. And uh, because from my perspective, the stakes are much higher. I did this research between Ethiopia and Finland. And in Finland, there have been no reported or only a handful of reported incidents of violence that have emerged 
because of uh, communication online. Mm. And whereas uh, in Ethiopia, we deal in a country that, which has a lot of uh, mass violence going on, millions of displaced people, uh, conflict. And uh, so, again, it, it's, a diff- it's a very di- different kind of debate once we move move on. There's a lot of practical examples around where it's lacking, but I think it's this lacking of resources, lacking of uh, people, lacking of financial yeah. resources, technical resources, uh, lacking of technical, lacking of data. Let's keep the conversation going. Send your comments, questions and feedback on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at global underscore futures or email hello at globaldigitalfutures.com. We might just give you a shout out on the next episode. Yeah, it's really interesting because I'm thinking of when I was studying like 2018, 19 and what you said about how this um, discussion about extreme speech has become way more mainstream and content moderation is way more mainstream because at that time it was seemed like more like the onus was on the users to increase their digital literacy or increase digital literacy in different communities etc increase media literacy and users should understand and critically analyze the content that was in front of them you know and we were still like really questioning are these platforms just tools that are then being co-opted for different uses? So is it the platform that has the issue or is it the context that is being used as an issue? So yeah, and it's really it's really interesting that like three years on or two years on, it's completely switched and the onus is more and more on the tech companies. So it's, it's fascinating in that sense. Just very quickly, just I, I also sense or I feel or I, I see is that this trend has been very rapidly accelerating Mm. around the pandemic as well and uh, partially for good reasons partially not for the best reasons there has been also an increased kind of consensus that certain types of information should be removed as harmful to the public fair enough but then the question is that who decides what is harmful to the public which brings the earlier freedom of speech issue or the prior restraint and the issue of uh, should we have intermediaries as the undemocratic filters of what is allowed to be said and the second thing that i'm very interested in is that as a, as a kind of global president, if there is a there's a mechanism or a procedure or a kind of a map of how to work with content moderation, there is a very short distance from uh, using content moderation to remove uh, unwanted speech in, uh, let's say, the European context versus going to another context and that unwanted speech happens to be by the opposition or as we are seeing in many countries. The mechanisms, the technologies, only thing that is different is that the politics are different or the political system is different. So again, there might be a lot of unwanted consequences of this normalization of prior filtration and uh, companies deciding increasingly what we are supposed to see and supposed to not see. That actually leads into my next question and that this conversation, as you just mentioned, it does highlight the tensions between the multinational tech companies and independent nation states, you know, especially in the global south context. Could you speak about how this power dynamic is playing out in different parts of the world and how different governments are responding to and also probably putting pressure on big tech companies within this ecosystem of content moderation and extreme speech? So uh, some colleagues of mine published a very good special issue, and that was uh, maybe six months ago, where they didn't talk about content moderation, but they talked about internet shutdowns and uh, they... uh, articulated content moderation by online companies or platform companies like Facebook as one possible strategy in a wide array of internet shutdown practices. So what that basically means is that uh, 
content moderation or removing certain types of speech, there are various mechanisms of how to do it. So one interesting thing that came out, uh, there was a Gado, who's a tan- Tanzanian uh, comic uh, artist, uh, very brilliant, came out with a cartoon during the Trump uh, deplatforming episode. So at the same time, uh, President Museveni from uh, Uganda had also been involved during the during the elections. And uh, so he basically, instead of him being shut, shut down from by the social media companies, he shut down the social media companies from the whole country. And then he shut down the internet for a while because of various reasons. So there was a cartoon by Gado where he where he was in the in the US social media companies that say to Trump, you are deplatformed or you're removed. Whereas in Uganda it was the contrary. So again, interestingly, just pinpoint the fact that there are the internet, unlike what most people, especially in the in the kind of Western context still think, does have an off button. And it is not very difficult to shut the internet off. So one reason why debates on content moderation, if you look at it from this perspective, become so interesting that it is uh, increasingly linked to the different tactics that different political systems have for controlling communication online. Mm. Often for good reason, sometimes not not for that that good reason. One of them is uh, shutting down the entire internet. The other is uh, forcing or legislating companies to uh, comply to certain national legislation, Mm. or then you have all kinds of other different things, social pressure. So you have this set of tactics that can be used, and or it can slow down the internet so it doesn't work at all and, and uh, do infrastructure kind of uh, lags and other things. Mm. So if you look at it from this way, the question of why and how content should be moderated, if the platforms have become like the infrastructure, according to we communicate, it links to broader political questions. So if we cannot resolve the question, what seems to be the trend is that the better solution by many governments is that internet shutdowns or alternatively trying to gain full control of the ecosystem. And again, sometimes whether the social media companies have control over it or whether the, the governments have control over it, it's a very dubious question. So we are dealing with, this again, these big political stakes that are being played out. From my perspective, kind of the beacons of what's going to be happening mm. in digital communication in the next five years. So yeah. where I talk about this idea of anticipation and anticipatory media. And as we know, now we're seeing, uh, well, China has already very effectively created their own alternative internet infrastructure that allows their the political system to moderate content as they want. So now we're seeing that becoming increasingly normalized and uh, the content moderation debates are often used in context around this political push for more control over online communication. And so I think it was Freedom House with their freedom of speech land, of course, said that the online freedoms have been diminishing, diminishing or reducing for the last 15 years now. And the trend has even accelerated during the COVID-19 pandemic. So the online freedoms have been steadily declining for the past 15 years. So again, this is a, it's a good context to place it in. That obviously often done for a reason and it has has to be done in a way. But all these things come to play once yeah. we go into the complicated question of legislation and national politics and then these multinational big, big technology com- companies. So finally, if you had to choose one change, technical or legislative, that would positively impact the media ecosystem in terms of extreme speech, what would it be? It's a solution <laughs> question. So uh, where there was a quote somewhere. I'm gonna, One is able to see a problem by virtue of the solutions that follow from it. An event is the complex network of thought and action involved in the problem and attempts to solve it. So I would respond to rather than looking for a solution, I think uh, what needs to be done now is we need to reframe the problem in a potentially new and creative way that allows us to conceive solutions that we don't know know yet. This is my kind of post-Telosian critical theory perspective. <laughs> and by what this means is that by imagining the problem in in a new way or not, or in, I would say, in plurals, so it can be in multiple different ways, we can then also conceive 
solutions that how we want to solve the problem. And obviously, how we envision the problem is something that is far too important to be left to a handful of uh, companies. Mm. So this is obvious as a classical example of democratic deliberation. We should uh, seriously consider and take into account what we consider the problem to be first and how we want this problem to be solved so that certain types of communication, democracy, freedom of speech issues, uh, restriction on hard content, protection of minorities, how these things become most successfully balanced out. I, I don't think there's any ultimate one solution. So the closest as a very practical, going away from the high level philosophical, theoretical mm. stuff, the closest in a practical way that I have seen any organization try to work around this is what some people at Article 19 have been working around social media councils. So they have been trying to... Uh, promote the idea that there needs to be a, a cross-stakeholder participatory dialogue around questions around content moderation yeah. in order to address these things. Because at the same time, they are very careful of working in freedom of speech field and countries where they don't necessarily trust the government of being in charge of freedom of speech so they can bring bring in all kinds of things. So that would be the closest that I would uh, respond when people ask me, what is the solution? I say they are that's the closest that I've seen as a good direction towards solution. But as somebody who's doing a bit more critical research, I'm trying to find what the problem is first. And I still haven't found the exact problem that I'm looking for, but getting closer. Amazing. Thank you so much, Massey. Like endlessly interesting. And also just making us think about the debates, the questions in a different way, reframing the questions and the narrative. Thank you for listening to this episode with Dr. Matti Pohonen. Follow Matti on his website, matti-pohonen.com or follow him on Twitter at m. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe and follow. Also, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It will really help with our ranking. And if you enjoyed the episode, please share the podcast with your friends. You can find us online at www.globaldigitalfutures.com and on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook at global underscore futures.